Well, there's my identity that's, uh, that I know of, and then there's the projection other people have put on me. In America, yes, I am still Black, and people project what they will. And growing up, I've always had the worst expectations from people imposed onto me. With myself being mixed, and I look a bit, people are confused. They think I'm Latino. I'm not Latino. And, uh, you know, of course, in school, people would call me the N-word or chink or all kinds of different things, you know, and in life, I took that. But that's, it built a shell and it built a, a sense of understanding. I understand a lot of those people, they grew up in, in a bubble. For myself, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, pretty much majority of my mother's uh, or my maternal side of my generation were mixed race. And uh, I grew up in all kinds of different communities and I was pretty much the odd one out, fish out of water, with myself being one of the only um, people, kids of color in a school in some situations, uh, or I would be the only uh, kid of black descent or the only Asian kid around. It forced myself, you know, throughout my entire life, I, I have this, this frame of mind where I have to be the best that I can be because I'm trying to beat their uh, confirmation bias from what they've heard because of a lack of exposure. Hey, everybody, it's Kim, the host of Multiracial White Boy. I'm a mixed transracial adoptee from Vietnam. This is my podcast where I examine the impact of my white upbringing by having personal discussions with other mixed individuals about racial identity in America. That audio clip you just heard is from my guest, Isabello Pasquel. He is a bi-coastal film producer and entrepreneur. And I share that particular clip of Isabello because I feel like I feel like it really revealed a lot about who he is and the importance of shaping his own individual legacy in this country here in America. And as you'll see, it's because Isabella has a very rich and interesting family background. His mother was born in Haiti, and she was a member of the Haitian aristocracy. Her family had been in the U.S. under political asylum since the early 70s. Isabella's father is Filipino, and he talks a lot about his grandfather serving in World War II and with the U.S., and then proudly using part of a pension fund to opening up a family-run grocery store in the Philippines. So in short, whether it was in Haiti or the Philippines or here in America when his parents immigrated here, it's apparent that his family worked really hard to create a life for themselves. And because of this, it's pretty obvious that Isabella was intent, really intent, on creating a strong legacy of his own. Yet, as he tries to make something of himself in this country, it's apparent that he's spent a great deal of his life, as he says, trying to beat the low expectation that others have projected onto him because of his mixed identity. So without further ado, let's talk legacy. This is me in Isabello Pasquale. I spent some time as a kid in Florida. My family moved to uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. Okay. I went to middle school and high school out there. So let's talk about that. Cause I know you're, you talked about 
your mom who was born in Haiti. Yes. And she, you said she was a member of the Haitian aristocracy. Yes. And her family had been under political asylum since the early 70s. And, you know, and I did, you know, you sent, you sent me a little information about Papa Doc. And I Googled him because I had no idea because what do I know? I'm an American. Just we have very little knowledge of our own history. Um, so tell me a little bit about your mom. Uh, so my mother, she was uh, born in Haiti and uh, her family, they were mixed race as well. So a bit of history with Hispaniola. So when we have Indigenous Day, it's in reference to, uh, or it was formerly called uh, Columbus Day, in which case Christopher Colombo, as his actual name was, he was not Spanish, he was Italian. He was commissioned by Queen Isabella uh, to go to the New World. And so in 15, uh, sorry, 1492, Christopher Columbus and his fleet, they landed in Hispaniola. And so my mother's ancestors, they're, well, my mom's mixed race as well. She's, uh, you know, she's Haitian, but she has some Italian and German. And obviously that's from the, the slave masters. They, we know the story. Or for those who don't understand, there was a lot of force, force relations between uh, slaves and the masters. Well, those- that's a lot of part of the story about being mixed. You know, you have the oppressor and the uh, oppressed. Right. Uh, but that's how the, uh, the I am, I'm also part you know, Italian and German. And so I did a, a DNA test uh, using a service called CRI Genetics. And uh, it's one of the most accurate uh, genetic tests on the planet, not to uh, on the commercial market, but also they don't sell your genetic information as opposed to Ancestry or 23andMe. So I found that appealing. But it was, it's been documented and well-known in my family. So going back to the aristocracy. So in countries, you know, in South American Caribbean countries, if there were members of the community who were of mixed European African uh, heritage, they were regarded as higher class, et cetera. There's a lot of classism. They had fairer skin, et cetera. And they were the aristocracy, you know, after the Haitian revolution. And uh, a lot of my, my Haitian ancestry has been uh, protected for me. One of the reasons is that uh, my family is well known. My mother's uncle was actually the prime minister of Haiti, 1988, Marshal Celestin. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, dissent and chaos right now in Haiti. The president uh, was executed a few months ago, or he was assassinated, excuse me. Yeah, I remember and, reading about that. Yes. And so my family, for the most part, wanted to protect me. So I don't know all of the names of my family, of my, of my surviving family that still lives there. Uh, but I know, which is on your mom's side, on my mother's side. That's correct. And I'm, I've been active in the Haitian American communities. There's a, a California group out here called the Cali Haitians. And I've been an active member for, for years. Uh, so I've done what I could as far as some light activism. Of course, I'm not in the best financial situation to volunteer out to Haiti. I can't do that yet. But when it comes to a certain point, I'll be able to do that. Well, what's, what kind of commitment do you feel like you have to your Haitian an- ancestry? Well, I want to say this. So firstly, I'm an American of Filipino and Haitian ancestry. You know, culturally, I'm American. I was born and raised here. And that's you know, my identity. And I have my Haitian and Filipino ancestors. And I got some other swirls in the mix. Uh, but I mean, as a descendant of you know, Haitian ancestry and being part of the Haitian aristocracy, 
I have an obligation to do what I can. I mean, I'm a realist and I have to take care of things domestically here first, you know, especially with my career and my personal life. When I'm in a more comfortable situation, I can do more activism. So your father, though, he's from the Philippines. Yes. Does he have a more modest story than your mother's, however? Uh, it is a bit more modest. Yes. Uh, my, I'll start with his father. So my grandfather was the son of a farmer. And he was, uh, he became a soldier during World War II. And he fought against the Japanese with the Americans. He was in the Filipino, uh, Filipino army. He and uh, a battalion of Americans were captured and he was, uh, he was forced along the Bataan Death March, in which case the Japanese forced American and Filipino soldiers along a 77 march and thousands of uh, men died. My grandfather, he survived and he was awarded a U.S. pension, reinvested that money into a grocery store, which he ran until his death uh, in the late 70s. Whereabout was that? Uh, that was in uh, Quezon City in uh, the Philippines, in Manila. The grocery store? The grocery store, that's right. And by the time your dad came here, though, was was did he immigrate with his mother and father, your mother, like your grandmother well, and your grandmother? My father was a grown man when he uh, immigrated here. He's in his 30s. My mother, she came as a child. So she has, you know, she spent some time in Haiti. And so she has a Haitian identity. And then she came here when she was in you know, her preteens. And she's been here ever since. My father was in his 30s when he arrived. So it's a bit of a different story. But my father was a merchant marine. And he traveled around the world for, uh, for over a decade. So, but also, yeah, Filipinos, uh, since America uh, invaded the Philippines in 1915 under Tom, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, English has been basically a, a national language. So that's not a problem. My mother had to learn English growing up. But in Filipino culture, for over 100 years, uh, we've been speaking English. How did your parents meet? In uh, it's funny. I, I joke around with friends and say they met at a rally. <laughs> uh, they actually met at a, at a laundromat or actually a dry cleaning place in Tarzana. Why? Why do you joke around and say that they met at a at a rally? Well, some people think that I'm very uh, eccentric or very uh, opinionated about certain things. They think I'm militant in some regards. Nah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and they joke around and they they thought that like uh, my parents are both activists and whatnot, you know, which they're not. You know, Why do they consider you an activist? And then they assume that? Oh, uh, it depends. I mean, I, I have your parents are, came from that. So you have that in you. Well, I mean, I've been vocal about certain things. I mean, I have protested in regards to against you know, police brutality and other injustices in our country. Uh, but uh, a lot of people, they like to project things onto me, which do whatever you want. You know, it's up to you unless you have a conversation with me and then we actually get to know each other. That's, a different story. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So your parents, they met at a laundromat. A dry cleaner, actually. Yeah. A dry cleaner. So my mom was working at, in a, a dry cleaner and they met and they, they did what they did and boom. <laughs> so just you or do they have other, do you have other brothers and sisters? Uh, I have uh, four half sisters from my father's previous relationships and my uh, previous marriages, excuse me. And uh, my full brother from us, the same mother and same father. Growing up in Burbank. Uh, all over. Uh, we moved around, uh, around SoCal and in Florida. 
Okay. So you wrote in your email, because I have everyone write an email to me describing a little bit about yourself. And you said you were essentially one of the only colored kids and or mixed kids wherever you went. Uh, I did go to the early part of my life. I went to a lot of predominantly white schools. Now, a funny thing is uh, uh, these were public schools. These were, these were not private schools. On my maternal side, my brother and I are the only ones of our generation who did not go to you know, a Catholic school or a private school. Uh, since my, But my mother raised me well, and she is part of the aristocracy. So some people might think I come off a certain way. But I'm just a regular Joe. So, <laughs> so you keep mentioning that, that people think you're an activist. They think you're, uh, you know, have a sense of heiress, you know, maybe privilege because you came from, you know, like your, the background of your mother's background, the historical rich background of your, your mother. But with your upbringing, you know, I'm curious because you were mixed and obviously pretty intelligent. Were people kind of blindsided by how articulate you were and seem like, you know, a pretty good amount about your own family history? Well, there's my identity that's, uh, that I know of. And then there's the projection other people have put on me. In America, yes, I am still black and people project what they will. And growing up, I've always had the worst expectations from people imposed onto me with myself being mixed and I look a bit, people are confused. They think I'm Latino, I'm not Latino. And, uh, you know, of course in school, people would call me the N word or chink or all kinds of different things, you know, and in life I took that, but that's, it built a shell and it built a, a sense of understanding. I understand a lot of those people that grew up in, in a bubble. For myself, you know, I'm fortunate that, you know, pretty much majority of my mother's uh, or my maternal side of my generation were mixed race. And uh, I grew up in all kinds of different communities and I was pretty much the odd one out, fish out of water with myself being one of the only uh, people, kids of color in a school in some situations, uh, or I would be the only uh, kid of black descent or the only Asian kid around. It forced myself, you know, throughout my entire life, I, I have this, this frame of mind where I have to be the best that I can be because I'm trying to beat their uh, confirmation bias from what they've heard because of a lack of exposure. Let's say they've only seen people from a certain socioeconomic background and they project that you know, as, their, uh, as their understanding. And with myself, it's like, I completely offset their belief system. It's like, this guy's intelligent. He hauls ass, he makes things happen you know, with his limited resources. He's not some privileged trust fund kid or he was not grandfathered into companies. He's a go-getter. This is interesting. If he can compete and be in the social service of these trust funders and, you know, all kinds of different people who they wouldn't normally associate with somebody like me, then I guess I've been, I've been an honorary member of those cliques, I guess you could say. Well, I've mentioned it on this podcast before than I'm an honorary, an honorary member of the white community. Cause I grew up with a white family. I'm a transracial adoptee from Vietnam who happens to be really mixed and all over the place. So is that what you're suggesting that you're kind of more steeped in whiteness? <laughs> I wouldn't say that I have my own identity. 
but what is that they, though? What is that? Because I, I think that's what all makes people want to do. They just want to be have. I feel like we we have our own identity. We get constant expectations, like you talked about. So, what is yours specifically? That's uh, an interesting question. I, I mean, with I'm Isabella. That's who I am, and uh, I've been in certain situations where. I kind of feel like the outlier when I'm with my Filipino family. I am Filipino, but I have my other identity and I am pretty American and I have other members who they've been here for, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, but they still have their tribalistic sensibilities, in which case some people, they live in only their community, even if they've been in the States, you know, for decades in which case that really, it limits their uh, opportunities. And when I'm on my Haitian side, the same thing as well. You know, but also it goes even, it's a bit more complicated in the Haitian side because I'm not of Black American ancestry, I'm of Haitian ancestry. And it's, there's, there's all kinds of different things. Like in the Black community, there are the African-Americans, there are the Africans, there are the Caribbeans, and there's some colorism and there's some other conversations and there's a lot there's some i guess some infighting but of course it comes down to empathy and understanding uh i guess you could say i'm assimilated into american culture and other people on both sides of my family aren't in some ways you know so it's it's a bit complicated and, and i understand you know you're uh, an adoptee and you have your identity and you, you were brought in by a wonderful family as far as my dynamic, you know, I, I'm the son of immigrants and I have, I, there's this thing that I coined the American reset button. And uh, what that means is that I'm afforded an opportunity to define myself however I want. I don't have this, you know, generations long family legacy, at least in the States to live up to. And so it affords me a freedom and a motivation to push forward and define myself versus let's say somebody who, you know, their parents were, you know, they met in the Korean war and they came here in the States and that's that there's still the American identity here. I start fresh. So that's a, a beautiful thing for me, you know? No, that is a great thing because you do start fresh, but you still can't escape the rich and interesting history that you come from. Your, your parents' side has given you not a sense of luxury, but a sense of really um, rich history. And I understand how you want to kind of reshape your own identity here, but how does that, that Haitian history and ancestry shape your identity now? What, has it given you a sense of grit? Has it given you a sense of um, seeing what it's like to be a, a black person in America a little bit differently. Cause I've heard Haitians talk about that because Dominican Republicans talk about that, you know, uh, Cubans talk about that, you know, the, the Afro Cuban community, they come here and they, they were never seen as black when they were, mm -hmm. you know, when they were in Cuba, for example. So yeah. What do you mean? Like yeah, shaping your own identity. Okay. But then being heavily influenced as well. Well, yeah, I carry a sense of, 
you know, pride in, in my identity, but it doesn't really translate here to the States. Uh, as I what mentioned, do mean, what before, do you mean by translate? Well, my family, my families, both sides, they have names in their countries. It doesn't mean anything here because my mother's side, it's mm. last time my mother's family's side meant anything was, you know, decades ago. Now it's just, uh, I guess it's like a, a dying dynasty, if you could call it that. Father's side, you know, my grandfather, he not only ran the grocery store, but he was a pillar of his community. And so a lot of people, they still remember uh, his, his legacy. And uh, one of my uncles, he's actually uh, one of the, uh, the councilmen in his community. Uh, so there's that. If I were to go in my neighbor, in my father's neighborhood, uh, they know my father's family. But for myself, I haven't been to the Philippines yet. I've been to Haiti. Last time I was there it was over 20 years ago, but I've been there, I've touched the soil and I, I know the, I've seen some of my family's land. You know, I know I've, it's been, it's tan, my Haitian side is more tangible than my Filipino side, as far as, you know, actually being there. But I grew up with both cultures. So because you're a first gen mm-hmm. Haitian and Filipino, mm-hmm. you keep bringing up the word legacy. And because your mother came from a strong historical legacy and you mentioned your father side of the family who had, despite modest, you know, means still had a legacy of what they, in terms of busting their ass and making something of a life for themselves. And is that part of your identity here that you feel like you have to create your own legacy here? In America, like that's part of your identity. Uh, it, it it is. I mean, everybody has their own destiny. I guess you could call it. Or some people they have the the uh, the privilege to not be so hard on themselves. With myself, I have to build from absolute zero. I don't have. Uh, I've, I've never been one for nepotism. I've always been the odd man out. And I've seen firsthand how some people have benefited from nepotism, you know, with their careers, with their social circles, et cetera, versus myself being the odd man out. I have to start from scratch, you know, offer some value to the circles. You know, I have to dis, uh, disarm them, I guess you could say, because they have a certain confirmation bias. And so when they have a conversation with me, get to know me, they say, hey, you're not one of those people. You're one of the good ones, I guess you could say, since in their frame of mind, they still, they still have their, their biases, you know, so as far as talked a lot about removing people's biases, when you make contact with people and when you engage with people, is, is that a little, is that a little pressure though? I I, I like, (laughs) well, it's, it's pressure's (laughs) good. I love pressure too, but when pressure turns to stress, well, it depends on who you are, how strong your mental faculties are. True. My my uh, my gem, uh, my birthstone. I'm an I'm an Aries, and so that means that my my gemstone is a diamond. And how are diamonds formed? From coal. It's a lot of pressure compressed uh, on the coal, which forms the diamond. So my entire life, I've uh, been fighting uphill battles. I don't mean to say with some grandiosity, but I mean it's it's been like that pretty much. Where you know I've Attempted some business deals or some other things in my career, and I couldn't get a loan from the bank, or I had a lot of difficulties due to being the odd man out. 
while other people have the privilege. Yes, I understand they have some, their families have social circles and different opportunities, which afford them, you know, these luxuries versus myself, I have to start from scratch. And so I understand that there are some kids that are like me, this, you know, that are coming up now that are mixed similarly to me and they need to have that archetypal figure. And so I'm working towards that. Growing up, I didn't see too many, you know, Blasian kids or people. I mean, there's Tiger Woods, Dwayne Johnson. Uh, who else is there? I, I don't really know. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a lot. I've, for the, I guess the first, you know, 22 years of my life, I didn't really meet too many Blasians. And then, you know, when I went to, when I went to college and I was working in different places, I started to see it. And see what? Longest, Blasians. Started seeing Blasians. So did yes. you, so did you not feel a sense of belonging for a little while until you made contact with certain Blasians or other mixed individuals? We, we've had certain conversations, but I've been a lone wolf for most of my life in that regard. You know, so it's, it's interesting and it's, it's great to hear their perspectives. You know, so, you know, I, I serve, this is a personal mission of mine. I serve as a vehicle for future generations to feel comfortable with themselves and say, hey, this, I don't have to feel ashamed of who I am. You know, they can see somebody else like them an avatar of them and they can say hey i want to be like him as every child should have but you were talking about like you didn't have many of those but you eventually exactly. you met, so now you met some blasians eventually yes yes and, they, and we had similar conversations about and where was this uh so it was in uh florida and la and new york when i was traveling around what were you doing at that time uh so i was uh i was in college and i was freelancing uh a lot of you may not know, but I have a, a production background. And uh, early in my career, I was predominantly you know, doing production work as, you know, a key grip and a cinematographer. And, you know, more recently, I've been focusing more so on producing. Because I have my hard skill sets and my connections. But I figured, hey, if I'm able to, you know, facilitate these deals and give people opportunities, I can help them out versus just being a grunt. That's good that you're like trying to create relationships to tell the stories that you want to tell. Is that, does that sound around the same? Like, well, if, pretty if, fair? eventually right now I'm doing contract work where I can. So get these. So what, yeah. What is your background? Like with, you know, I, I know that you're in film in production and, you know, given your, your Blasian background, why, you know, what, what, what do you want to do initially? And then what, prompted you and incited you to get into want to get in the film business? Uh, so a lot of people have asked me uh, what I wanted to be when I was uh, when I grew up. And I loved the Indiana Jones movies growing up. And uh, I said I wanted to be an archaeologist uh, because, you know, I could be like uh, I could be like Indy and travel the world, eat some great food. I'm talking about the uh, the Temple of Doom scene with the, the buffet and kiss pretty girls. Uh, and then I saw short round as the assistant, you know, so, you know, a lot of people have been whitewashed, I guess you could say, and that's been a big, uh, conversation for a lot of people, a lot of people of color, that they didn't have the, uh, avatar like them growing up. 
I wanted to be an archaeologist growing up so I could travel. Uh, but now, you know, I'm telling whatever stories I can. You know, obviously, I'm you know a free agent. I produce what I can. Down the road, I would like to tell more stories. You know that uh, people can relate to. But my job, first and foremost, you know, as a producer, is to tell stories that people can relate to. What kind of stories are you talking about that people can relate to? Like what kind of people? Like mixed people? People look like you? Anyone, anyone. I'm not, uh, I don't constrain myself to just my specific identity. Some people, they are very just centric on their identity. As far as myself, I'm just a storyteller. And I happen to be Blasian and I tell these stories. But I guess down the road, I would like to tell more Blasian stories. But it's not, uh, or just have people of color who are just great uh, uh, characters who have compelling stories that anybody can relate to. I'm not just uh, one audience centric, one demographic centric. I'm just, you know, I want everybody to hear stories. So everybody can be heard. I want to pivot to um, your article that you wrote mm. and you had a term called tactical empathy. Yes. Talk to me about that. Uh, so I was reading a book, uh, called uh it was written by chris voss chris voss he is a uh, former fbi negotiator and uh the book is called never split the difference and it's uh it's a sales uh, and influence training book uh and so he discusses tactical empathy uh which is a way for people to relate to their prospect so then they can understand and they can build rapport and then close the deal. And a lot of cops historically have uh, been members of the KKK or different uh, prejudicial organizations. And it's been well-documented. There was even a cop uh, or an ex-cop. Uh, I think he was in uh, Baltimore. He was a former Baltimore uh, police officer who had uh, been a whistleblower about the prejudicial system in the, the Baltimore uh, police uh, uh, precincts. And uh, in my, my life's mission has been to just uh, dispel people's confirmation bias. Like a lot of people say, oh, you're one of them or, or one of whatever. And they hear me and they see me first and foremost as a human being. So that here, that's the tactical empathy right here. I'm disengaging their confirmation bias and letting them see me as a human being versus, oh, he's this or that or that. Since a lot of people project their negative experiences, especially if they grew up in a very insulated environment, be them from an affluent area or from the ghetto. If they just stay in that, uh, in that sphere, that's all they know. And that's a real shame. And so in that article, that, that Medium article that I'd written, I was trying to reframe some people's public opinion, the confirmation bias. Did that officer shoot a black man or did he just shoot a man? I wasn't trying to put a you know, racial context to, uh, to that conversation. I wanted to you know, utilize tactical empathy so people can see and humanize with one another. Because that's right, but you, Well, you also use tactical empathy in reference to systemic racism and police brutality, however. Yes. In which case, as I mentioned before, I wanted to dispel people's confirmation bias so they can see 
eye to eye and say, this person is human, not just this person is black, white, Asian, whatever, Hispanic. No, this person is a human being first and foremost. And so that's where tactical empathy comes into place. Well, my, my feeling is when I, after I read it, I was like, okay, he sounds like he really wants to be a bridge builder. As I've mentioned before, that's been my mission my entire life. Because a lot of people have projected their confirmation bias onto me. But then when, they, when we've had a conversation, they said, oh, you're one of the good ones, which that's very offensive to me. What was your intention, you know, back then when you're writing it? I wanted people to elicit tactical empathy instead of just uh, pointing blame and scapegoating and saying, oh, all black people do this, all white people do that. Because in a, a lot of communities where they're very insulated, they say, oh, they just they didn't make generalizations. And that's a problem right there. And I face that. And I've had to de-escalate situations and say, those are the situations where people would say, oh, he's one of the good ones after having a conversation with me versus saying he's like the rest or blah, 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 et cetera. So that's where I was coming from, where I wanted people to use critical thinking and maybe say, hey, maybe this person's from a certain socioeconomic background. Maybe they came from... Uh, an abusive household, there are certain environmental factors that created this circumstance for them to do this action. And so in regards to the officer killing an unarmed person, another human being, I'm not going to say a white officer killed a black person. I'm going to say a human did this to another human. Why? Fear. Fear and a lack of empathy and understanding. Simply because of a lack of tactical empathy. Can I relate with somebody else? even if they're from a different background than I am. They have a different political affiliation, different racial affiliation. That, uh, that, I, that I totally got. Yes. But given that you, you know, you are seen as a black individual in this country, mm-hmm. how did things like Black Lives Matter and George Floyd change? Did it change you at all? As I'd despite mentioned- the artic- Despite the article? Curious. As I'd mentioned six years ago, I did march. Uh, uh, I was in New York at the time. And I you did could pro- still get that, right. And you could still understand cops too, I'm sure. <laughs> no, of, of, of course. But uh, like six years ago, or was it six, seven years ago, uh, I marched against the, uh, the, the verdict for the, the cop that was exonerated after killing Eric Gardner. I was in New York at the time and I marched uh, with Black Lives Matter at that time. And we held the RKO Bridge in, uh, past Harlem for several hours. Uh, as far as myself politically, I'm, you know, more uh, centralist and more objective. You know, I've always been uh, nonpartisan. Reason being is I see both sides, and it's dangerous to lean either too extreme to the far right or to the far left, because then you're not seeing, you're not able to empathize, because there's this this uh, this wall between both philosophies. If you can meet in the middle and say this, this, there's some merit to this conversation, merit to this statement, then maybe we can find a middle ground. But too much of this adversarial stuff doesn't resolve anything. If you don't deploy tactical empathy, you can't relate with somebody and they'll always be confrontational. But if you dispel this wall, if you break it down in a very effective manner, which is not... Uh, uh, it's not aggressive and agitated 
It's from a human standpoint. Do you get shit for being essentialist because you're not maybe too tribal about all the atrocities against black people or even BIPOCs? Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, ignorant to what's happened. I know my history. I know domestic history. I know world history. You know, I don't live with blinders like some people may assume that I do. Uh, I see the fallacies of Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. I, and as I mentioned before, if people were to look at things from a new lens instead of either uh, Democrat, Republican, Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and just say, hey, it's a human situation. This human did this and killed an unarmed person. You know, there's this factor. I don't, I don't put a, a racial blanket over things or a political uh, affiliation over things. And so some people say, oh, you're, you must be a traitor. You may be a traitor. It's like, what the hell? What are you talking about, man? I'm not, tra- I'm not a traitor to anybody. I don't play teams. My entire life, I've been the odd man out. I don't play teams with anybody except my tribe, which is everyone. Everyone who has the same mission as I do, has the same work ethic and has the same aspirations and ambitions who want to be better. That's my tribe. Yeah. That certain, that mentality has a risk to it. Unfortunately, you know, it really does. And I admire everything you just said, but I think what part of the problem is that because you're black people are going to always want you to be on that side and to see things from that side and that side only. Here's a funny thing in my own family. I have some Filipino members of my family who are more Republican centric or they I've had, I was at one reunion one year and I had a family member say, I'm sorry. And I said, for what? Oh, your mother's black. It's like, what the fuck? excuse my language. What does that have to do? What does that have to do with anything? It's like, I'm still your blood. We're biologically related, you know? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's why people call me controversial because I don't play sides. I don't do that stuff. I always end the podcast about what you feel optimistic about. And you've talked a lot about your legacy. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's of great importance to you mm-hmm. and for you to shape your own identity without the preconceived notions of others. So what do you feel optimistic about regarding your legacy moving forward? Well, going back to my own personal family history with my paternal grandfather being the son of a farmer, and how he was able to, in his generation, to build a successful grocery store in his lifetime. And that laid the the foundation for my father's generation. and then on my maternal side, where we had the, the historical legacy with being members that, uh, that shaped the, uh, the structure of that country, of Haiti, for over 200 years. And then there's the reset here, where I'm able to be in the position of a lot of my friends, where let's say some of them, their grandfathers or great-grandfathers were architects or whatever, and they made huge contributions in the city of L.A., or other places. And a couple generations later, they're here. My friends were here. And yes, I, I know the reality of the situation. Some people, they fall off. Maybe they have the same work ethic and aspiration. Other people, they fall off. You know, given that I have the 
unique perspective that I have and seeing their, their history, I'm able to build the blueprint, or at least I'm working towards building the blueprint for future generations where my descendants, they'll have certain opportunities. But I've also learned from my own personal history and my family's, uh, my friend's family's history, what to do and what not to do, which is a beautiful thing. And being a first-generation American, I'm laying down the foundation for them. And I know what, to inst- what values to instill and what to do so they don't mess up in life. And so they're optimized for the best situation, financially, emotionally, you know, psychologically, for the rest of their lives. Not trying to make mistakes of my, of my personal ancestors or my friends' families. Thank you, Isabella, for coming on the Multiracial White Boy podcast and sharing so much about yourself and so much of your intention of creating a strong legacy for yourself in this country. I appreciated it, and thank you for opening up about something that, quite frankly, a lot of immigrants come to this country, and they, you know, especially first-generation immigrants, and they, man, do they have a strong intention to create a life for themselves here that that is in you know in honor of their parents or in regards to how hard they worked you get it okay thank you again everybody once again i am kim the host of multiracial white boy please remember to subscribe to the multiracial white boy podcast leave a review leave a review of this particular podcast and also remember to follow us on instagram follow us there And last podcast of the year, folks. Next week, season two, last podcast. Thank you very much. Have a great week.